Would you pray with me? Matchless and holy God, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each and every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, for Lord, you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. In what we call the 15th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, We read that Jesus has gotten himself quite a reputation. The IRS and a few legal experts are now auditing his classes. But their evaluations are consistently poor. Their problem is that Jesus seemed to like festivities. He was always inviting folks out for merrymaking. And Jesus had a few prostitutes, criminals, and welfare recipients in his fave five list. And they all knew that if Jesus came around, there would be plenty to eat, some good storytelling. And if his mother had anything to do with it, there'd be some mighty fine wine. It's in the book. So the agents and experts were registering their complaints against this unbecoming behavior. Now, Jesus knew the law, and he even seemed to have taken Pete, Jamie, and Johnny to meet a lawgiver and a prophet personally up at their villa. Anyway, Jesus, with all this insider information, when he overhears the gripes of the folks who want to be in charge, you can anticipate fireworks when Jesus goes over to talk with them. Now, what should you, would you, could you say when you have the undivided attention of your main critics? What strategy should you employ when given a hearing by your worst enemies? Should you quote scripture, rehearse the law, or explain your activities? Would your position of defense become the best campaign against you? Could you pacify their protests, minimize their misgivings, and retrieve their reservations without compromising your purpose, progress, or personality? There was going to be a live press conference on YNN. I saw that on television last night. We don't have that down in North Carolina. USA Today is going to cover this story 2,000 years later about how the creator of the universe traveling incognito as a first century Jewish carpenter approaches his critics, not with the handbook of holiness, not with selected texts of scripture, and not with an excuse or explanation. Jesus simply tells a story. It's a story we're familiar with. I wish we weren't. Familiarity might cause you to miss the wonder, fail to notice the impact, and overlook the promise. This is not a simple Father's Day message. And it certainly doesn't need some ad lib about the absentee mother in this situation. I mean, this is a story told by the man who can turn water into wine. Do you really think a few years of Bible college and a course in public speaking can produce a better illustration? And this is no simple story. 
It's not a personal testimony or a private visitation. It isn't a peek into ancient Middle Eastern culture or standards about child wearing. It certainly should not be reduced to few rules and moral principles. The stories Jesus tell are an account of the activity of God in this world to set the world to right again. It's not an observation and a prescription. It's a revelation that is a description. It's not what you see is what you get. It's a promise that what we see now is not what we get later. So when you pay attention to the revelation made available in Christian scripture, you see what God is doing and what we see God doing in the Bible, we're supposed to be doing in the world. We're supposed to be reflections of holiness, not rhetorical legal experts. So while we bicker about whether backsliders will ever, were ever really slaved, we overlook the hypocrisy of the Christian witness in the world. I mean, really. We all know how much makeup a Christian woman should wear. It depends on her face. (laughs) I understand that we have political power enough to go to court over whether or not a piece of rock should be placed in the courthouse so that people who have already broken the civil laws might at least visualize the moral laws. But I'm wondering... Do we live in such a way that the world sees the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in us? Something that causes them to look at Christians and recognize we're different from everybody else? You see, that's the problem among the religious leaders who first heard Jesus tell this story. Those self-appointed saints look no different from the political powers that be in Rome in their rules, regulation, and social rituals. In the same way the first century religious leaders imitated secular power brokers in their accommodating rhetoric of nationalism and militarism, 21st century leaders preach the virtues of privacy, freedom, and equal rights. And just like the ancient power brokers, today's leaders fail to explicitly subject these norms to the claims of Jesus Christ and the presence of the reign of God. We have forgotten these values are consequences, not commodities. We can't purchase them, we can't create them, and we can't guarantee them. They are not the end. They are not even a means to the end. But when you look at God and you know God, then you know life. And to know true life, is to know peace and justice and righteousness and blessing. Our task as Christians is to help the world recognize these experiences are not civil rights, but a glimpse of the glory of God. We must be careful not to promise that we build the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. We can't and we don't. We can bear witness to it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I I don't want to tell you what to do or what we should be like. I want to be like Jesus today. I just want to tell you a story. Have you forgotten that old story that Jesus tells? The story that the Jews had been telling for generations. In the beginning, God the Father set up this garden in preparation of a wedding celebration. 
This same God lit the branches of a bush to hold a new birth party for Moses. Can you guys work with me here? And and, and then later, God called a holiday for the Israelites laboring under Pharaoh so that they could start a freedom party. And this same God let David boogie right out of his clothes, right in the middle of the celebration. Which, by the way, is an explanation of why holiness people have a restriction on dancing among young people who say they really love the Lord. Yep, and it also why we have a dress code. (laughs) But all this seems to point that God is a partying kind of God. I did it again. I'm sorry. I'm in church. It seems to point to the fact that God is a celebrating kind of God. (laughs) You remember the psalmist? God likes noise. A joyful noise, that is. And for some people, that is a problem. When Jesus told these stories of the celebration that follows finding what is lost, some in the audience... Well, they were just plain party poopers, too judgmental to joke around, too righteous to relax, and too sanctified to celebrate. I know there's nobody like that in Houghton, but that was then. These are folks who walk around waiting for somebody to offend them. They find fault like dirt finds pig pen. They can spot somebody else's sin a month in advance. And if happiness stopped in front of their house, they'd have it arrested for trespassing. How do you expect people like that to react to a God who wants to celebrate? These three parables in Luke 15 demonstrate Jesus' insistence that in heaven there's a party going on. Luke has just rehearsed two other parables of Jesus about a shepherd finding sheep and a widow finding a lost coin. And Luke retells this particular story in great detail. This is the story that is to be remembered among the people of God. A story about a father and two sons. And just like the last book in Christian scripture, the end tells us God wants to throw a serious party. When Jesus tells the story, it sounds a whole lot like human rebellion, divine redemption, and a Wesleyan opportunity to choose this day whom you will serve. Let's let's hear the story again. The younger son demands of the father what the father has always promised to provide him. And in his haste to control his gift, he leaves his father's shelter, goes out into the world to live like everybody else. And while he has nothing less than all he was promised, he wasted these resources in immediate gratification, living large, partying hard, and ignoring the example of moderation and sharing that his father had demonstrated in holding back his inheritance while fulfilling his every need because the father has always been more concerned about relationship than riches. Soon the resources were depleted. And the son's needs began to speak louder than his wants. And he recognized the foolishness of trying to live in his father's wealth without his father's means of management. 
The reckless, self-indulgent, excessive lifestyle turned out to be less fulfilling than the watchful, charitable restraint of the father's ordering of life back home. But that's not the moral implication that Jesus wants us to get. Jesus continues to story to say that the son who was the most rebellious turns back, comes back to his father, abridged version here. He returns and is enthusiastically welcomed by his father who all along desired to be reconciled with his son. Jesus goes on to make his point by turning attention to the other son. The older son receives the provisions of the father and arrogantly relishes his sacrifice to stay under his father's shelter. And while he has nothing less than all he has ever been promised, he failed to recognize the foolishness of trying to live in his father's wealth without his father's means of management. For while he certainly followed all the rules and did the right things, his own desire for personal gratification, and living large, ignored the example of moderation and sharing that his father had demonstrated in holding back his inheritance while fulfilling his every need because the father has always been more interested in relationship than in riches. So though his resources were not depleted, the son's wants began to speak louder than his needs. And when his brother returns, all he could do was accuse, judge, and complain. So how do you expect people like that to respond to a God who wants to celebrate? There are two audiences listening to this parable. Luke says that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming close to listen to Jesus. And then he goes on to say the Pharisees and the legal experts were grumbling about the welcome extended to sinners. So they were listening too. The problem with the religious leaders were they knew the rules, but they hadn't experienced the reality. They could quote scripture, but they couldn't cause scripture to be written anew. This is why when people described how Jesus taught, they said it was an authority with which they had never heard before. You see, to speak with the authority of the prophets, you have to be on speaking and listening terms with God. Your life should reveal God long before you ever open your mouth. It should cause people to ask, what's what's different about you? And then you can say, you really want to hear it? So notice how Jesus tells this story of the father and the two sons. He doesn't, he doesn't just say the father was forgiving or, or gracious. Jesus describes an abandonment that was unheard of in the first century Middle East. It, it, fathers don't accept the arrogance of their son without recrimination. No Jewish son would get away with an effect saying, dad, I wish you were dead. To this day, people in traditional cultures like that of the first century find this story quite incredible right here. Fathers don't behave like that. He should have given life to the words of Bill Cosby. Boy, I brought you into this world. I will take you out. For those who understand how families work, there's a depth already built into this story even before the son leaves home. But in our culture today, we we leave home all the time to pursue our futures. 
I mean, I guess that's, that's the only way that Houghton, New York would actually be populated. <laughs> but in Jesus' culture, this would be shameful. You don't leave home. Your obligation is to your family to bless your children and their children by your prayers, your presence, and your patience. To care for your parents as they grow old. To pass on the family heritage to the next generation by telling the stories. So the boy is already disrespectful when he says, I'm heading out to go to stay, out of state to college. And the plot sickens as he runs out of money, finds himself a Jew no less, not only feeding pigs, but hungry enough to share their food. Jesus couldn't have told a more powerful story, and yet he does. For the extraordinary scene is when the father ran. Senior figures are far too dignified to run anywhere. And yet this man takes to his heels as soon as he sees his young son dragging his sorry self home. And this is the point of the story. The father is more interested in relationship than riches. The son's memorized all the text. He wants to get on daddy's side. He, I, I remember what you told me. I, I, can, I can do it. I, can, I got the four spiritual laws. Let's see, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to say I'm a sinner and confess and, and then I'm supposed to repent. And, then, and, then, and, and, and dad says, son, I hear you're looking for a good time. Come home and I'll show you a party. And Jesus repeats here the moral implications of this story. Let me remind you of what the first century Jew knew just as plainly as we know what happened on September 11th. You know, the stuff we know what comes after when you just say a few words like you say, Marco, yeah, I knew you would know that, or M-I-C, you want to sing it? It is so easy to lose you guys at this point. This is the story that the Jews knew by heart. God had two sons, two children, whom he had promised to give all that he created. Adam and Eve, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, And when the one turns to the world and the other turns to the rules, God never ceases in his desire to be reconciled with his children. The father has always promised to provide for them. He will keep his promises that they will have all that is theirs for he created it for them. And despite our haste to control this gift, whether those who leave the father's shelter and go out into the world and live like everybody else or those who receive the provisions of the Father and arrogantly relish our sacrifice to stay under the Father's shelter, regardless of the self-righteous rule-keeping, all the wasted resources in immediate gratification, living large and partying hard, demonstrate to the world that we ignore the example of moderation and sharing that the Father demonstrates. You see, for God's mercy and grace demonstrates that he is more concerned with relationship than riches. And we are to be examples of that kind of generosity in our living, our forgiving, and our giving. Because when we finally come home, there's going to be a a festival, a feast, 
When, when what is lost is found and when the one who is dead is resurrected, it is time to celebrate. Three times Jesus explains why he hangs around with sinners. Because people who have been forgiven much know how to say thank you. People who have seen transformation never forget it. People who have received their sight never miss a sunrise. The three parables in Luke 15 demonstrate Jesus' insistence that in heaven there is a party going on. And and if we keep praying for it to be on earth as it is in heaven, it seems to me then we're just going to have to start having a little bit more fun. Our job is to live so that others feel like they're at the pregame celebration. No excuses. We live our lives so that others want to return to the Father. Jesus is not saying that when they come home, they'll be accepted as they are. Note, the younger brother's repentance is transformation. He's given a new set of clothing. He he is beginning to look again like the father's son. He is what Wesley called being sanctified, made perfect in the love of God. And Wesley's perfection is a recognition that to be holy as God is holy is to be patient and kind, not jealous or conceited or self-important, or short-tempered, or rude. Holiness does not demand its own way and keeps no record when it has been wrong. It rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And to be holy is to never, ever, ever give up. To be holy as God is holy is to endure through every circumstance with that which you think I am describing now, love. Because such love endures forever. Not like the righteous brother. He wanted to lock the door, move the farm, and leave no forwarding address. He he was willing to skip church to make the point that he was angry with his brother. So angry that it was comparable to Cain's. He was ready to take his brother out. So the message of grace to the younger brother becomes the message of judgment to the elder brother. That's the message the religious leaders heard. God keeps forgiving people we want to judge. Cain killed Abel, and God put the murderer in witness protection. Jacob stole Esau's birthright, and God wrestled with Jacob until he could go home to say to his brother, may the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent one from another. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, but God used that evil to position Joseph that he might save those same plotting siblings from starvation. So when Jesus told this story we call the prodigal son, the Jews recognized the younger brother were the Gentiles, the other children of God who had squandered their blessing in the world with no regard for their creator. And the older brother were the Jewish nation, God's firstborn, who kept the law but forgot their brother. The father used the prodigal to witness to the other son God is gracious. And in light of the resurrection, the Gentiles, God's other children, saw the witness of Israel in Jesus, the anointed one, and the Jewish community who became followers of Christ and became a called out community of love and sharing. A community in which the presence of God so evidently abides that others notice. When the Jews got it, the Gentiles got it. 
And now the promise of Abraham is fulfilled by this nation. All nations will be blessed. Jews and Gentiles receive the blessings promised to Abraham. Children and adopted children now called Christians to bear witness to the world that there is a God. And that's the message we must hear so that we remember rightly how we are to live in the world. I'm going to be talking about that for the next three days. And, and, and in a sense, that's why we gather for church each week. It's why students choose to come to Houghton College for, to learn how to live as if this is the world that God created, that Jesus died for, and to which the kingdom of God is going to come in fullness. The angels celebrate even if we don't. And when we discover what is going on in heaven, then we discover how things are supposed to be on earth. So if you want the kingdom of God to come, I suggest we get dressed for the festivities, for the life we live as the people of God on earth is a foretaste to all the world of the glory of God that God intends to do with all the world eventually. When we do that, then we really hear the father saying to the son, you want a party? There's a party going on here and ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party. Because the Holy Ghost party don't stop. So let me suggest, go and get your brother and sister and let us get this party started. Amen.